Keep Talking exists to have conversations that might help to make a better society and a better culture. I believe that each guest has important information and stories to make public. This is the Keep Talking podcast. To support it, please take a second and subscribe to the show. It helps to make this content possible. The following is a conversation with Lighty Klotz. Lighty is a professor at the University of Virginia and is the author of Subtract, The Untapped Science of Less. During our conversation, Lighty talks about why humans are so wired to add to rather than subtract from their life, how addition is a signal of competence that we are hardwired to display, and the downsides of this natural tendency. Lighty also talks about the many ways in which subtracting can be beneficial, from quitting smoking and high-sugar diets, to removing modern addictions like excessive social media use, to getting rid of work meetings to create slack for creativity and focus. The power of subtraction can't be unseen once it's glimpsed. Evolution operates by removing what doesn't work. The via negativa concept notes that we know what is wrong with more clarity than we know what is right, that knowledge grows by subtraction, and human well-being is often best boosted by removing a toxic relationship, a toxic boss, or toxic stress. There is a humility in this approach, and as Lydie notes, perhaps we all need to be more often prompted to tweak our life goals and New Year's resolutions to include habits that need to be subtracted in addition to those we want to add. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Lydie Klotz. Lydie, I told you this before we started recording. I've known about your book for a long time. I am fascinated by the idea of subtraction. I can't wait to have the conversation. It's great to meet you, man. Welcome. Thanks, Dan. I can't wait either. This is my favorite kind of conversation. So I'm looking forward to it. Me too. Let's just start at the beginning here and maybe give the audience a little bit of a background on how this book came to be in the first place. I think that might be helpful to kind of set the table for the major ideas and themes in the book. How did it come yeah. to be? Um, well, there's this, uh, the if there's an origin point, it's when I was playing Legos with my son, who was four or three or four at the time, and we were playing with his Duplos. And the, the problem we had was that we were building a bridge, basically. And one of the columns of the bridge was shorter than the other column. And so I went to solve this problem by that turned around behind me looking for a block to add to the shorter column. I turned back around with a block in my hand. And by the time I had done that, my son had removed a block from the longer column. And, um, you know, that right there is, uh, we, we spent a ton of time kind of studying that cognitive process. But what happened to me in that moment ended up being really similar to what we found in the research, which is that like we, when we try to improve something, in this case, it was a a Lego bridge, but it also applies more broadly to all the different things that we try to improve. Um, Why is it that our first thought tends to be, hey, what can I add to this thing? Um, And which isn't necessarily a problem, but it is a problem if we add and move on without even consider whether taking something away might have been an option as well. And that's what I would have done if my four-year-old wasn't there. And I it, had this been a subtraction as a theme, had it been something that you had really considered at some point in your past, or was it really triggered by 
you know, this experience with your, with your son, which I know you talk about in the book itself. Yeah, it's definitely something that was there. Um, I think the, the, the experience with my son was really formative. So I'm trained as a, um, as an engineer, uh, I've got really interested in like sustainable design. Um, mm-hmm. and so I would always pay attention to situations where it's like, oh, look, there's a polished concrete floor. And the reason that's cool is that, you know, number one, it's a nice surface, but it's also means the floor tile isn't there. Right. And so that's an example of subtraction. I wouldn't have described it that way when I was talking about it in one of my classes, but I, I'd always been interested in like these kind of elegant, designs right um and i write so you you run into these situations where it's like oh why like um taking stuff away from writing is one of the ways to make it better right so i certainly care about subtraction had noticed subtraction had seen it as something important to study i just could never find the construct within Mm -hmm. which to study it um and that's what the the lego problem really helped with um it was like okay it's not that sure i'm interested in elegant design sure i'm interested in you know uh minimalist stuff but the fundamental cognitive thing that uh that i'm curious about is like okay when when there's something that we want to make better why is it that we don't think about taking something away from it so the the lego is really helpful in kind of um crystallizing that question and in sharing it in a way that other people could use it so i've I've got had great collaborators on the research that followed and one of them gabe adams um i'd been talking to her um about research ideas right and about what i thought were some of these ideas about why don't we design more elegant things and i i took her the lego problem because after i did it with my son i was bringing this like replica everywhere and i would make my students take it when or make my students do the test when they came to meet with me about something they wanted real advice for and um everybody was like getting it doing the same thing i did of course and uh but I, so i took it to gabe and um she I thought I'd been talking to her about these ideas and she's really smart. So I thought she would get it right, but she did what everybody else did and, and added. And then that really kind of helped the idea snap into place for her too. So I think as, as helpful it is, as it was for like crystallizing my thinking about it, it was also really helpful in like kind of sharing it with other people in a way that they could understand as you can tell since it's like still being used as a as a way to like just it's just really useful way to describe the concept it's very physical yeah and i'd love to get into and you talk about this in the book why it is that we seem to have such a propensity for addition over subtraction is seemingly in our nature and you go over i think there are a few different areas of you know uh, life and our history that are probably causing that tendency in us and their biological, financial, cultural, and economic, if I remember correctly. And mm-hmm. you go over these, uh, you know, one of the kind of throwaway lines that I, I have kind of gleaned in listening to your work is that, you know, addition is often a signal of competence in yeah. people that we like to I don't know if show off is quite the right word, but that there is a probably a uh, you know a bit of an ego boost or a signaling that is going on with uh, our tendency to to add. I'd love to just put that to you and get your your thoughts on why it is that you think that we're we're kind of constructed in this way that we have a propensity for addition. Yeah, 
I mean, that was what's really cool about finding that we have like this kind of wired tendency to think in a certain way is then you can go looking for like, well, why, why is this happening? And as you said, Dan, like the, there's no single reason for any kind of behavior, but the, you can look at these kind of biological, cultural, and, you know, financial other kind of um, incentives that all kind of work together to have us do the things we do. Um, and, you know, biologically, I think signaling fitness is a really good way of putting it right. We're signaling. And, um, so when you, I was looking for, okay, what would, what biological reasons would explain this? There's of course the kind of accumulating food has been helpful, Mm. right? That's Mm. been a good thing to help us pass down our genes. So it made sense that people would stockpile in that context. And the, the competence I was, that really resonates with me because when I find myself adding in the real world, like, you know, going to meetings or why is my calendar booked or why am I like, why is it so hard to get rid of a paragraph of text Mm. that I've written, even though I know like the, the reader doesn't want it is to, it's because you want to show that you've done something. And I was surprised to see how biological that is. I guess, I think the example I use in the book is of bower birds. Those are the birds that build the ceremonial nests, right? Mm. And so what happens is the male bower bird goes and builds this really cool nest and the female bower birds go and look at them, decide which male to mate with based on which nests they like best, which all kind of makes sense. But then the female goes and builds a nest to raise the young. So there's no like shelter purpose for this first nest. It's just to show that the male's good at, you know, moving sticks around and designing sticks. And um, this desire to like show that we can effectively interact with the world is something that all of us has and have. And it's been extended from kind of completion of physical tasks to completion of you know, everyday um, kind of white collar <laughs> tasks, mm. right? So when I check something off my to-do list, it's a part of it is that same, you know, kind of desire to to show, hey, look, I'm I'm doing things in the world. I'm competent. And, you know, I think people get it, but it's worth pointing out that like the reason that disadvantages subtraction, sure, you can show you can be competent by taking something away, but there's no evidence, right? Or there's often no evidence or less evidence, right? So if you take away the the floor tile and just have the concrete slab to go back to the example mm-hmm. from the beginning, or if you take away that text, nobody sees that subtraction. It's like, oh, maybe Lighty just got lazy and made a concrete floor. Maybe Lighty couldn't think of another piece of text. And so um, that really makes it hard to take away in a lot of cases. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I was, you, this is another theme that you go through in the book is the idea of, and I don't want to butcher this. So if, if, if this is incorrect, I would love to know, but developing subtraction as a proactive act for people Mm. rather than just allowing subtraction to kind of come to you. And that, there are you know sort of moments that i've been thinking of over the last day or two in our own culture where major improvements are often um most gained by eliminating something and so mm-hmm. for example in the 20th century the second half of the 20th century i think you could make an argument that the most important health gain for the country was removing cigarette smoking that that That's by true. itself yeah. was arguably more important than all of the 
you know, additional healthy foods that were introduced into the diet of Americans and uh, any additional exercise hours that just eliminating a bad habit like that, that was killing so many millions of people was arguably the the best thing that, that we can do. And, you know, I, I know for people who are probably listening to this, their, their interest, and I have to imagine a lot of people who speak to you, this is exactly where their, their heads go is practical applications for this now. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've been talking about this book, I know for many, many months, and I, I'd love to put it to you of what, you know, when you look at the country and the world, and I don't know if you agree with my general assessment of um, the proactively removing things that are not benefiting our culture or for people. But if you do, what are the what are the themes you're seeing? What what kind of advice or observations do you tend to at least think are worth thinking about in relation to removal? Yeah. Um I think it's great. Yeah. We can't just wait for ourselves to, you know, kind of think about it or for some four-year-old to be playing Legos <laughs> and show us this other option. Right. But the, but the other side of that is it's not that hard. Right. I mean, we can, we can think of it and I, I think of it in kind of two stages, right. You have to think of the subtraction, which we've shown is, is harder to do. And then you have to kind of follow through with it. The good thing is the, you know, the basic categories of things you can do about it kind of work on both. And so, you know, one general category of things to do is just to put in place reminders to consider the option. Right. Um, And that's different than, you know, just saying, okay, here's this silly meeting we should get rid of. It's like, okay, what is, um, you know, say you've, uh, Every week you're doing your to-do list. Can you put a reminder in place to consider subtractions, right? And it's like, okay, mm-hmm. now I'm going to think about stop doings. And it, it's nice because it helps you overcome the the thinking barrier, right? So now you're going to think of it because there's a reminder there when you're making the decision. Plus, now you can show competence, right? In this case, it's just to yourself that like, hey, I'm doing what I uh, past Lighty told me to do, which is like think of stop doing. And that's a, a thing to display competence. But you can also imagine that on annual reports, for example, right? There's nobody I know who's like, oh, my work is not busy enough. Um, mm-hmm. So when you're saying, here's the three great new things you're going to do in the next year, also share what are the things you're going to drop, right? And if the, you know, the people who you're reporting to or the, the people who are reporting to you know that that's an expected thing. Now you can display competence by, by suggesting these things to take away. Um, so those are kind of of small scale, like kind of individual level examples. I've seen some really cool things in organizations, I guess, um, where thinking about, um, I guess thinking about, uh, ways to build it into their processes. And I, the ones that are inspiring to me are like the really drastic ones. Like, or like um, I was PBS, I learned they got rid of annual reviews, um, mm-hmm. which it's like, the, and their, their justification was like this immediately, the way we're doing this puts people in like a criticize defend mindset, which is exactly the opposite thing we want to have. So not only that, but it's also taking all this time, all this effort away from other activities. So we're going to get rid of them. I've, I'm sure they've replaced it with something that, mm. you know, kind of fits the bill, but it's not nearly, it, they basically got rid of annual reviews. And that's a really massive subtraction that has freed up a lot of time. Um, the meetings, obviously we can all pick at 
individual meetings. There's some cool examples. Um, there's a company, Asana, and this case study is mm-hmm. written up nicely on the internet. You can Google for it, but it's um, they had a meeting doomsday. So basically all the meetings off the calendar, right? But then you can immediately start putting them back on, but it's it, it flips the the calculus, right? Instead of saying, okay, I'm going to like get rid of, should we get rid of this meeting or that meeting? It's should we add this meeting or that meeting back, right? And, you know, this isn't my research, but one of the most like robust psychological findings is that it's more challenging to lose something than it is to gain something of the same value. So they've like kind of flipped that around so that now it's not like losing meetings, it's it's adding them. Um, and that, you know, had dramatic effects. I think I, I'm going to butcher the exact numbers, but it was double digit hours per employee per month that they figured they had saved by doing that. It's like, if you put money to that, that's a tremendous amount. Um, in policy, I think uh, one of the uh, same thing, nobody ever says, oh, we don't have enough rules and regulations, right? Um, and that's something that the left and the right agree on even. Um, and I've seen a really cool trick just basically saying when you propose a new rule or Mm. regulation you also have to say here are two that we should discuss getting rid of and i think what's nice about that is just the discussion for all three right it's like here's the thing we're proposing let's talk about that and while we're at it let's do our due diligence and talk about these two that we should maybe get rid of um and it's forcing the system to stay in more balance um so yeah, there's some really, really neat uh, kind of large scale examples out there. Um, I, I, one that I hadn't thought of and I think is probably useful because one way to think about subtraction is you can do it kind of in the physical domain. You can do it with our like organizations and our our schedules um, and also do it with ideas um, and and mindsets right and so like some of the organizations that they'll really focus on hey what are the mindsets that are holding us back i'll use another pbs example but the um because it's coming to mind Mm. quickly is that um focusing on the mindsets they're like well one thing that's holding us back is this idea that all of our stations are their own thing um that's really preventing us from kind of finding the the things that that hold us together. So that's an example of a mindset. I don't think it holds everybody back, but it's like sometimes changing those mindsets can be one of the most most powerful things and it's really hard to subtract mindsets. We're very unlikely to kind of question the things that we've been building all our ideas on top of. Yeah. And I, I can give I more, know. but that, that was a long answer. So I'll stop. <laughs> no, that was, that was great. I mean, I, one, one area that, you know, again, I think you know, we're both Americans, but just speaking culturally yeah. about the way in which our, our financial you know system is designed, which is very much about productivity and acquisition and, you know, buying more stuff as you get yeah. older. I mean, one of what I, I watched the movie fight club when I was young and one of my favorite it remains one of my favorite quotes of, uh, from any film, which is that the things that you own end up owning you. And uh, yeah. I, I wonder if, you know, there, there does seem to be, and you alluded to this earlier, this biological propensity for accumulation because of, you know, our, I think probably our uh, prehistoric minds 
lacking so much and that stuff was Mm -hmm. valuable in you know probably the arena in which our our minds were carved in in prehistory but i i wonder about you know the way in which our our you just mentioned this about how in work people like to seem very busy i think to justify their job and their position and that anything they're aware of the fact that if they remove things or start to ask for more time that there is not a uh that that won't necessarily be well received i think the same is true with with buying more and more stuff that there's a um a, a desire for many people to show that they are you know gaining material success in that way and do you do you view this mostly you know specific to america as unique to our culture i'll just say that, you know my business partner lives in japan and i kept thinking about the difference between the way americans think about removal and subtraction in our culture and the way japan seems to think about that same idea and how you know you you go over there and i've i've been there once for almost a month and there is subtraction everywhere in that country mm-hmm. you, you notice it immediately even in the conversations there's far less that's said there's far you, you walk yeah. you go into the homes and there's far far fewer items that are distracting you that are in it it's it seems to be much more about leaving space for the essential mm-hmm. uh and you know, I I did a, an interview a few months ago with uh, Pico Iyer, who wrote this incredible oh. book called The Beginner's Guide to Japan. And you know, Japan is thirteen hundred years old. We're two hundred and fifty years old, roughly. We're the kids on the block. They're the older culture. I, I I'd love to just put that to you as a cultural cultural juxtaposition. If if there are places in the world that you think have are sort of sort of already ahead of the curve with this, and maybe it's Japan, maybe it's another country that has in your mind uh just been a bit more thoughtful <laughs> about taking the idea of the, the importance of subtraction in many areas and applied it to their own way of life. Yeah, and you've also had Joe Heinrich on too, right? From yeah, that's yeah, right. Who's the weirdest people in the world. I think well, I can speak uh, yeah, I'll uh, th- I'll talk a lot and then kind of summarize based on what's most important probably. But the, there's so much there, and it's so it's such a great question. Um, I mean, first, what our research speaks to on the cultural side is you know we're very aware that there could be cultural differences, and so we did study. Um, we got a German sample and a uh, yeah, we had a German and a Japanese sample, and they there was more variation within the samples than across the samples. So there weren't, but it wasn't, you know, that wasn't the point of our study. The point wasn't to like prove it definitively. It was just to make sure we weren't, you know, missing something major in the cultural. And so we are kind of working on getting a more robust cultural study to see if there's differences. My guess based on uh, kind of what thinking about it and, and studying it is that the, the, the tendency to not think of it would be pretty similar across groups. Um, but the, the tendency to follow through with it could really be shaped by the, the culture that people are in. Um, so, um, and yeah, I think that, um, certainly the examples from Japan, I went to, um, Sweden this Mm -hmm. summer, uh, and they, 
definitely in their kind of built environment. And it's funny you mentioned the language because I hadn't thought about that before, but that's one thing that they talk about with, um, you know, no, don't worry. The people are really nice. They just don't talk as much as us. Right. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah. Um, so don't be like put off there. And it's, it was exactly right. I was so glad I had gotten that advice because it's like, wait, why is this person saying anything? But they're like so warm and genuine. Um, so, so yeah, I think there's definitely differences in the countries. The age is interesting too. Let you point out, um, which us being 250 and Japan 1300, where it's like, you know, one argument for why this happens on a cultural level, right, is that you're just kind of, for a long time, adding makes sense, right? When you're just starting out, it, it probably is a good default choice heuristic to think, mm -hmm. what can I add, right? It makes sense to build a road when there's nothing connecting the two places. It's only once you've got kind of a built up society or a built up organization or a, you know, a built up manuscript that you start to think about, okay, what can I take away? And so, you know, that's a cool idea that like, hey, maybe an older culture has, you know, has developed, seen what's going on, you know, seen, um, seen the adding has been good and then had more time to think about like, okay, our real goal here is to improve things. And now subtracting is an option more of the time. So that's, um, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because as we're designing this cultural study, I mean, one thing about the, the cultural stuff, it's not as simple as like, oh, Japanese people think this way and US people mm. think this way. And I know that's not what you meant, but it's like, mm. there's people who think, <laughs> yeah, there's people who have these different ways of thinking in all the different cultures. Um, and so we're trying to figure out if there was something that like was explaining the difference between adding and subtracting, what, what about the, the way of thinking would it be? And, you know, so, um, in one, one idea for example that we have is just, you know, kind of like a market-based society versus not a market-based society. Might there be differences mm -hmm. there, but the age of the society could be really, uh, an interesting an interesting variable. So I'm going to um, bring that up in my research group <laughs> meeting this week with attribution to you, Dan. Thank you. <laughs> sure. I, you know, I, I, I think even in this country where we're such, we acquire so much stuff. If you've met mm -hmm. anyone who has moved, I don't know if this has been your experience, but I have a close friend who's moving right now. And, you know, there, there is an immediate, they lament the fact that they have allowed so much stuff into their life. And now it's like uh, an albatross around their neck where they, they just have to deal with this slow build of, um, you know, all of the acquisitions that they've made over the years. And there's a lack of freedom, a sense of freedom of the ability to just sort of pick up and leave because of all all the stuff that you've acquired um yeah there another idea that i was thinking of this morning about uh your your book and i feel like it there's so many conversations and books i've read that uh, have threads into the book that you have created and one i'm going to read a section from one of my favorite books of all time i'm not i'm not sure if you've heard of this book skin in the game by nasim taleb mm -hmm. and he he has this quote where he is defining this concept called via negativa. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to read that. And then I'm, I'm just going to, I'd love to put it to you and, and just to give you a, some space to comment on this and how you think it, you agree or disagree and how it might relate to your book. But the way he puts this concept of via negativa, it's the principle that we know what is wrong 
with more clarity than what is right. And that knowledge gains by subtraction. Also, it is easier to know that something is wrong than to find the fix. Actions that remove are more robust than those that add because addition may have unseen complicated feedback loops. And then this is an additional component to this that he says later, systems learn by removing parts via negativa. I'd love to put that to you to get any commentary you have on that general theme and idea. Yeah, we might have to take it in parts because there's a lot there that ties in. I mean, I think the um, subtract the tie-in to knowledge. So that part, um, that like, you know, all the way back to Lao Tzu where, you know, to the, he really, um, I mean, there's not evidence that he actually said these things, but um, again, a quote that gets attributed to him is that like to add thing, to to gain wisdom, to gain knowledge, add things every day, to gain wisdom, subtract things every day, right? And yep. so there's there's this idea that, okay, like taking things away can be more um, uh, more powerful for wisdom. The system's point was that, um, what was the one about it being more robust? Could you read that again, please? For sure. Yeah. Maybe I'll just read it in its entirely one more time because I think yeah, it's yeah, probably worthy of that. Via negativa, the principle that we know what is wrong with more clarity than what is right, and that knowledge gains, that knowledge grows by subtraction. Also, it is easier to know that something is wrong than to find the fix. Actions that remove are more robust than those that add because addition may have un- unseen complicated feedback loops. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think, um, I think the other side of that, right, is like when you add something, when you subtract that, I agree that the actions that subtract in systems are more robust. Um, And it also like, to the extent that we're the ones that have played around with the systems, it Mm -hmm. brings us back to a more certain state, right? So if you like talk about this in terms of environmental damage, it's like, okay, well, if we shoot particles up in the atmosphere to solve climate change, Maybe it'll work, but we're also like messing around with a system that we messed up without, you know, even trying to mess up. So, but if we like pull carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, we have some experience with that, um, with that system. So in addition to, I think being just like more robust by definition, because there are fewer things going on, there are fewer things to fail. Um, the, um, in in the world in which we're the ones who have put things in and we're taking out stuff that we have put in we are kind of bringing us back to a, a more certain kind of system than than the system where we add things um and yeah so i think that makes a ton of sense obviously um and then i think uh one thing about taking things away in like an organization I agree that it makes it more robust, but like one of the reasons that we don't do it right is because you have to, you're then questioning the act of somebody else. Right. Mm -hmm. And you have to, it's a little, I, one of the systems point I, I make and subtract is that the, when you add something, um, it may not be, well, you can often add something without understanding how the whole system works. It's not, 
you know, necessarily a good practice because it introduces those feedback loops, but it's like, okay, if you put, um, uh, the organization's functioning and you add another employee, it's like, okay, we basically know you don't have to understand the whole organization to add the employee. You just like, Oh, we want to have a diversity officer. So we're going to add a diversity officer. Hmm. But if you really want to like, if you want to subtract something, you kind of have to understand how that. So if you already have a diversity officer and you don't want a diversity officer anymore, you better understand like what that person's doing in the organization to kind of, because you can take this piece out and it might have unintended consequences. So I think there's like more, mental work to do a good subtraction than there is to do a good addition in some cases like there's more things that you have to understand about the current system um to be able to take away if that makes sense yeah and i think you know he alludes to this in the book that a lot of the progress that you know human beings have made in like mitigating risk for automobiles driving driving cars driving airplanes have come through failure and removing what didn't work and mm-hmm. there's this honing over time and pruning of, yeah uh, and pruning and i know you're a civil engineer so i think this <laughs> this must be speaking to that that part of your brain and i i i want to you know we talked about earlier the biological component to the need to add but i i also would be remiss if i didn't ask you about you know, the way my my brain tends to operate these days, and I said offline that I've been interviewing so many evolutionary psychologists, is that you know, if viewed through evolution, and this is a point that Taleb makes in a lot of his books, that uh, a lot of what biological evolutionary history is, is subtraction. Mm-hmm. It's removal of, of organisms that didn't work organisms in their environment. And peace and behaviors, right? So it's like, yeah, evolution works by adaptation right that's the additive piece something random happens and then selection right so the things that aren't working get filtered out and so it's you know if you look at that at the same way that like okay we we're faced with something that we want to intentionally make better evolution this thing that's brought us to where we are works by working with both hands right like by adding adapting and subtracting selecting um which is yeah um there's a cool example in our brains too that um when you one of the things that your brain does when you aren't like when you're sleeping or when you're not you know thinking about something is the it prunes the things that you're you're not using right so that's a it's not killing you off but it's that's kind of evolution figuring out that a selection or, you know, that a subtraction is not a selection, but figuring out that a subtraction is, is better in that case. Yeah. I, I wrote down and I have this very nerdy section of my personal website of hundreds of quotes. And many of them I think are related to the major points that you make in your book about the importance of subtraction. And I just wanted to read a few of them and then put, put a question to you related to subtraction in general. And okay. There, th- this is one that I love that I think is um, something I don't do a great job with personally, but I would like to, in the spirit of simplicity over over time, get better at it. And, and this, it is fewer desires, but fully filled. This is another one. All the best, happiest, and most creative, productive times in my life have something in common, being disconnected. No internet, <laughs> no TV, 
no phone, no people, long, uninterrupted solitude. That's a quote from Derek Sivers. Another quote, abundant time trumps abundant goods. Another one, it isn't the learning that's so hard. It's the unlearning. That's from Charlie Munger. This is another one from Derek Sivers. He actually, he titled his book this, which is hell yeah or no. This is one that I've thought about a lot that isn't necessarily exactly related to the idea of subtract, but I think is sort of a close cousin and one that I, I find a lot of truth in, which is, quote, most successful people, quote unquote, successful people are just a walking anxiety disorder harness for productivity. The next one is who's, who's that by? We got to give attribution for that one. I, I I think I don't know. I would need to look that up, but I I remember That's hearing like, it and being like that. It sounds like Dave Barry or someone. Yeah, totally. Like, yeah, <laughs> that's so good. Another one is beware of the tyranny of the trivial. And then this is another one from Charlie Munger, which is it is remarkable how much long term advantage people like us have gotten by trying to be consistently not stupid instead of trying to be very intelligent. Uh-huh. Um, to me, all of that is is um, at least somewhat related to the importance of kind of knowing your limits and subtracting things from your life. And, you know, again, I think for most normal people that are just kind of living their life and, and trying to apply this to how they might be able to benefit them themselves personally, you know, I know in my own personal life and in, uh, some of my close friends often the the biggest gains in their personal well-being have been from removing toxic relationships mm-hmm. um toxic people you know i i have a very close friend who was uh, recently divorced and um it isn't something that i think again that culturally we are necessarily encouraged to think about but i'd love to give you a little bit of time just to to speak on that uh, the, you know the the more um you know for for just human flourishing mm-hmm. why and how subtraction might be used you've alluded to this a little bit earlier in the conversation but you can take that however you would like with relationships or stress or priorities um what are the big you know opportunities here in your mind for taking this idea and really applying it to your life because the the point should be to be better to have a better life to uh, have a more flourishing existence you know it's a lot it's a mouthful there but i'd love to just give you an opportunity to speak on that specifically yeah i mean i i obviously i agree with all the quotes and they're they're great i think that the maybe the thing that i have to add no pun intended is that like (laughs) this this kind of advice has been going on for millennia right like at least since lao tzu and it's it rings counterintuitive because we're doing the opposite. Um, but then somehow it doesn't seem to stick because we still need the advice. Right. Um, and so I, I guess that's where it's like kind of those reminders and the, um, the reminders and the, um, what's the other thing I said? Um, <laughs> I get where, where it's like, how do we build this into our processes? Right. So that we're not having to, think about it again in every single new situation um because i don't like i agree i i think for me the probably the most important one is the time right i mean the just just it's 
it's so self-evident when you say it but it's like this this is the only thing that we're we really have right and we're only getting less of it and Mm -hmm. so to not it's striking to me how how little i mean i think i do a decent job thinking about it i could do better but um all the people during the pandemic who were like, man, I realized I was wasting my life. And it's like, really? You just realized that? Like, I don't like, why were you not thinking about this before the, the, the global pandemic that you were spending such a huge chunk of your life doing this thing that you didn't find valuable. But, um, and I, I also recognize that that's a privilege that I have to be able to do that. But it's, um, I think it, the people that I'm referring to also had that privilege in a lot of cases. Um, so I think thinking about, yeah, the, the time, I think the cognitive one is a big one now, right? It's like, there's just so much information out there, which is great. I mean, it's a resource, but, um, it's really easy. I think to get, uh, you know, get stuck trying to listen to every single podcast mm-hmm. or every read, every single book, or, and those are like two of the, the good sources of information. What about all the stuff that's like, you know, just crap on the internet that somebody had to churn out or now that's being churned out by AI. Right. It's like, and so really guarding that because, you know, you've got real limits to the amount of information that you can take in. And then that's the stuff that you're going to be thinking about. And if you're thinking about, you know, yes, some top 10 list of worst places in the United States, you're not going to be thinking about something that you probably care more about. Um, So yeah, I guess that's, you know, kind of having the building it into your process so that you're not overlooking it in as many cases as possible. But then I think that these, the ones where it's not physical, the, the, the mental and just even the emotional, as you alluded to, right. It's like, Mm -hmm. you know, a, a lot of, a lot of good can come there. One of the, this is the last thing I'll say on this is um, one of the things we found in one of our studies and we used, did this study because it, it show it's one way to show that this is a matter of us not thinking about it. So the study was basically, we gave people this subtracting activity, um, this grid patterns uh, where the right answer was to take away. The wrong answer was to add um, and people were getting it wrong. So then, then we gave them a version of this where there was like a scrolling uh, number across the bottom of the computer screen and they had to press an F every time the number five went by, I think. So it's basically like you're texting and driving, you're distracted. What this experimental setup does is like increase the cognitive load, right? So mm. you're trying to, mm. you're distracted. Um, and when, when the cognitive load was increased, it showed people were even less likely to subtract. And so that was great evidence for us that made us much more confident that this was something where it's like, okay, our default wiring is to think to add. That's why when we're even more distracted, we rely even more on our default. But like when you take that into the real world, right? It's like the very times where you need subtraction, when you're most overloaded, that's when you're more least likely to think about it, right? Um, and so just if you're like inundated with information, thinking about it, all this stuff, you're just going to default into this mode of problem solving where it's like, what can I add? What can I add? What can I add? What can I add to get me out of this? When the very thing that you need is to, to take something away. And that's like, you know, that quote about the, whatever the people being used as, yeah, anxious productivity people. I mean, that's, that seems to be what has happened there. I relate to that quote so much. And I'll read that one more time because it's something that 
in my more stressed moments where I can tell I'm becoming more and more of a workaholic, I need to remind myself of, but um, it's most quote unquote successful people are just a walking anxiety disorder harnessed for productivity. And, you know, you were talking about COVID and one of personally, I think one of, if not my biggest takeaway from the COVID experience was that it, it really was the first time for me since childhood that I, I had so much more space in my life for quiet and undistraction um, and not having a full calendar. I don't think without that experience, I would have learned how enjoyable I think I really find that. Um, mm -hmm. it, it wasn't really something that I don't think was ever really marketed well to me that you know, I, I'm, I think a slight extrovert, but I have a deeply introverted side to my personality that I really enjoy that I think had been largely neglected for most of my adult life, just in trying to, to do a lot in, you know, the FOMO mentality. And right. it's something that I've really taken with me post pandemic is just trying to clear my calendar early in the day to have space for you know i think a lot of originality and a lot of clear thinking comes from having the capacity to eliminate a lot of distraction and you know one other interview that has been coming to mind as we've been talking is um a conversation i had this is not exactly related to what we're talking about today but i think it is in some ways the woman her name's anna lemke she she leads the uh, addiction center at stanford who wrote a book called Dopamine Nation. Mm, yeah, and it's related. Yeah. I think it's related too. And one of the things I remember her telling me is that you know, she she has people who come, right? We think about addiction as primarily a drug addiction. And that certainly is true. And she has a lot of patients that come to her who have addict, who are addicted to substances. But you know, she also has people who come to her who are addicted to porn, who are addicted mm -hmm. to social media. You know, these... Um, modern phenomenon that really have sparked, have sort of taken off in the last 10 or 15 years. And the first thing that she asked these people to do, if they're serious about trying to break this, is to remove that for 30 days. Mm -hmm. uh, and apparently this, the success rate for people that are able to do that is, if I remember correctly, quite high. And so again, like I, I think this might be cultural to us, but when I walk around the world now, it's obvious I see this in myself that the addiction is often to the distraction. There's another mm -hmm. quote that I love, which is that the modern devil is cheap dopamine, something like that. Yeah. Um, and that we're all these kind of addicts that are looking to get hits on our shiny devices that didn't exist 15 or 20 years ago. Anyways, I just wanted to put that to you as well. And it sounds like you're familiar with maybe her or the just the concept of subtraction and trying to break addictions in general. Yeah. Um I think, uh, I forget. Um, I think you've summarized it as well as it can be summarized. I, um, but I think that, that, you know, there's definitely a tie into like dopamine and seeking and if there's, um, and seeking this pleasure, right. Um, and the, um, yeah, I'm just thinking about how my kids are going to come home from school and watch Mr. Beast. Right. And it's like, whole, whole thing. I'm like, yeah. man, I feel like a horrible parent letting them do that. Um, so, 
<laughs> that's why I'm stuttering a little, but, um, but that's, you know, that is totally designed to give them the, the quick dopamine hits. Um, so yeah, I had something else that I wanted to say, but I, I can't think of it right now. Maybe it'll come to me in a second. Well, one, one thing, I mean, even you know, that, that it sounds like your kids are, uh, you know, interested in, in viewing that video content. God knows I am. I mean, to me, that's right. I, yeah, yeah. I love that stuff. And it's so endlessly interesting to be able, I mean, for me, it's usually not long form interviews. That's what I'm super into. And that's the content that's available is incredible, but you know, this is another thing I remember Anna mentioning during the time when we talked is that in her mind, a lot of modern depression is caused by a, a dopamine def deficiency when you don't have your hit of the next YouTube video or the iPad stimulation. And, mm -hmm. you know, for me, I don't know if you relate to this, but in the, the rare moments when I kind of introduce my own, you know, Sabbath, my, a tech fast for a day mm -hmm. or two, like this weekend, I'm going to, um, up to Mendocino with a bunch of friends and it's going to be totally offline. And I haven't had an experience like that in really years at this point, but I know just in the gaps in my day, when I get outside and I'm not like an addict, constantly checking my phone, um, I just feel so much better. And I, I wonder if, you know, you were talking about this as a parent and I, you know, my brother has a young son and I know that's a concern of his as well. But to me, I, I wonder if the, the real opportunity is if, if you do get out in nature, get away from the internet for a day or two a week, just the, the peace that can really be introduced into your life. That isn't, there's kind of this background anxiety that I think is also a part of modern life, which we don't often talk about of just being reachable at all times. Anyways, that, that was perhaps something that could be, um, noticed yeah. it, it, incentivizing people to actually intentionally break, uh, yeah. you know, the internet use at least in some form in their life to get the benefits from that. Yeah. Well, they should definitely listen to your other interview, but I think, cause I'm not the expert in this, but it does like, it seems to me like the dopamine is, you know, the, the Mr. Beast is tapping into like unnatural amounts of dopamine, right? It's like, you're kind of like hijacking that. Whereas like going outside, it's not that there's no dopamine there. It's just that it's like the, the natural amount and that you're, that's why it, it feels good in the moment and it feels good afterwards. Right. It's like, I don't, I, when I watch 10 hours or 10, you know, when I watch an hour, I never watch 10 hours, but if I watch an hour of YouTube clips with my kids, it's not like neither one of us feels good after that. We feel like we need to like go outside and run around yeah. because it's the unnatural. And so, and that's where like with your long form interviews, I think there's differences and there's definitely differences in the kinds of media, right? I mean, if you're listening to a long form conversation, that's a pretty natural form of mm -hmm. information presentation presentation, right? It's like, okay, there's, there's been conversations for a long time. Maybe Americans talk more than Japanese people, but you know, by and large, this is a pretty like normal way of kind of consuming information that we're tuned into. And, and even like the YouTube stuff, one thing that I, it's noticeable when you're watching your kids watch videos, um, there's these videos of the people who are like in the Amazon jungle, like doing stuff mm -hmm. as people used to do back in the day. And so there's like no sound, there's no 
I mean, there's editing, I guess, but it's basically you're walking, watching this person like walk around in the woods and work. And it's like the pace of it is totally different. And it just, it's, it, you can see the, the reaction is different. So I think, yeah, to, um, uh, thinking about like what, what's the natural amount of, um, information that we're used to consuming might be helpful. I, I there's a, uh, company that I talked to SAP that does mm-hmm. SAP that does, um, they do tool free weeks. It's not the whole company, but there's like certain groups within the company that do it, which is kind of like your version of going up to Mendocino and, but it's except for it's at work, which is, I mean, that's really a compelling idea when they told me that, right. Because it's like, okay, you've still got all these people that you're working with. And I can imagine they collaborate in totally different ways when they're not like all tied into this enterprise software that is just, uh, an anxiety disorder harnessed for productivity. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. Totally. I mean, to me, a parents would never encourage their kids to eat junk food. Right. And I mean, there's something roughly equivalent to like endless Mm -hmm. consumption of, um, of content. You talk about this in the book as well, that, you know, the just constantly consuming, Mm-hmm. Well, it's even like even lettuce, right? Even if you just ate vegetables all day, that would be the equivalent of like consuming long form podcasts all day. It's like you've got to like just uh, you got to have some time to process the food or to process the information. Yeah. And I've often thought that if you could mute, you know, in a standard American living room at night when people I think on average are wa- watching hours of television a day, mm-hmm. if you could mute the sound and watch the people who are actually viewing the movie, in my experience, people often look very sedated, uh, like they're on, um, they're, it, it's not an animated activity for most people, and that yeah. actually they're far more engaged in you know, real life activities where they're actually talking to their friends. I have nothing against um, you know, watching TV every once in a while when you're exhausted and you need just a little bit of a break, but as a habit in general, I'm, I try to be mindful of that. Um, and I, yeah, I have I know- a funny story that I've never told, but it's about, so like I had, I, they wanted me to come on one of these news programs and talk about my book and they're like, okay, give us your like five, top five things to subtract. I'm like, that's not really what the book's about. Like that. In fact, that's like counter. And they're like, no, that's the only way you're coming on and then <laughs> talking to my editors. And they're like, yeah, you should go on. It's good for the book. It'll get out there to smart people and blah, blah, blah. And, um, but one of my top five things was to subtract TV. And I'm like telling the TV people to do this because <laughs> that's like, I, I'm with you. Like if you're giving, if you want me to give like a blanket suggestion of something to take away, it's like, no, that's, it's, that's an easy one. Um, and it, like you, it's like, it's not, you don't have to subtract all of it, but like, if you think about the amount of time that people spend doing that and the payback that you get, I mean, you're never, nobody looks back at the end of their life and thinks that they didn't watch enough TV. Right. Yeah. I mean, so, um, yeah, anyway, I'm with yeah. you on TV. Well, I know, I know we're getting close to the end of the conversation and, um, you know, you, you speak about this in the book as well, which I think is such a brilliant, maybe first step for people to begin to think about this where, and I, I had never really considered this when you're making, you know, new year's resolutions, mm-hmm. it's almost always about what you're going to add or do in the next year. And people, I think you alluded to this earlier, don't give a whole lot of thought to what, what can you remove? Mm -hmm. Um, you know, you've done tons of interviews for this book. And to me, there's such 
applicability in so many areas of mm-hmm. life in general where this I- idea of subtraction can be i think wisely proactively you know acted upon and i'd love to just maybe close the conversation by giving you an opportunity to talk about any you know misunderstandings about the book or any insights you've had in doing so many of these conversations about um you know wise uh, implementations of subtraction, uh, j- just to give you an open forum to give any additional um, responses to questions you wish you someone would have asked you or anything else you've learned that you think might be helpful for people. No, I think you did a great job with everything. I, I alluded to this a little earlier, but I think it's probably worth um, ending on, which is just that like, as you're thinking about this, you just listen to this whole interview, like take some time to think about how you can build it into your process so that you're not relying on yourself to, you know, remember a, a witty quote or um, mm-hmm. some some advice. It's like, how can you build this in to your process and a little time spent thinking about that you'll build it into your process and then you'll see it work and then maybe you'll build it into your process in other places um so that would be the the thing that i would love to leave your wonderful listeners with love it thank you so much for doing this man it was a real pleasure to uh kind of dive into your work and i think i just personally agree with a lot of you know, what you're saying and um, could probably use some more time, as you just alluded to, to uh, give some thought to how I might be able to, to benefit from some subtraction. So thanks so much for doing this. It was really great to, to meet you. Yeah, thank you, Dan. I learned a lot, so I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Keep Talking. If you're finding value in this podcast, please consider supporting the show via the links below on Venmo, PayPal, or Patreon. Your support helps to make these conversations possible.